What would you do if you only had 72 hours to change the world? What would you do if you had 72 hours given to you to change the course of history? What would you do? What would you do, Trina? It makes you think, doesn't it? Think deeply. Oh, would I change this law? Or would I um, uh, tell all these people about Jesus? Or would I travel here and do healing ministry here? What would you do? This morning I'm going to be sharing. I don't like saying preaching because I'm not a preacher. I like to share. I'm an encourager. And so this morning I'm going to share um, conviction. I like to share conviction that God's placed within my heart and share it so that hopefully it encourages you in your journey and where you are at in life with Jesus. Amen? Amen. And I'm going to share to you from the book of Esther. And if we can turn our Bibles, if you've got your Bible on you this morning or your Bible app, if you'd like to open it with me to Esther chapter 1. I want to give you a bit of a spiel on this woman who was named Esther, an orphan child who changed the course of history. And I'm reading from chapter 1 this morning so I can give you a bit of a background to what's happening in Persia at this present time. Esther chapter 1. And when you have Esther chapter 1, say amen. If you don't, say hold up, please. Revelation. (laughs) It's always the one, eh? (laughs) Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. And at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. I want to stop here and I want to talk about this king who, who has everything, everything. He has so much that he wanted to show everybody what he had. 180 days it took him to display to all of his people his riches. Man, that's a lot of, that's a lot of materialistic riches from gold. 180 days. That's almost a whole year. Oh my goodness. This man has a lot of stuff. <laughs> 180 days. And after that 180 days, he displays his vast kingdom and what he owns. And then he spends Seven days at the end of that showing case, showcase, at the end of that showing off, he spends seven days partying. This man is living the life. He is living the dream. And he's there partying it up with his officials and princes and, and nobles. And it says here he had everyone from the least to the greatest in that room. Now, because if you can, if you can just imagine with me how vast the kingdom of Persia is, every person in that room had their own golden goblet. So not every goblet was the same. Now, think of how many people were in that room having a party. Like, that's how vast this man's kingdom is. To party for, how many, how many of us have partied for seven days? Those that were party animals like uh, my parents back in the past. Have you partied for seven days before? No. Really? Two days. Two days at maximum? Wow. Always a party animal, eh, mom? I mean, pasta. Wow. Seven days. And so you can imagine in the seven days, because everyone's having a bit of a drink, having the finest wine, And then King Xerxes, he thinks, 
man, there's just one thing I need to display. And it comes, if we come to verse, uh, I'm going to read from verse 7. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality, liberate that word. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. Oh, oh yes. Wait, what are you guys reading from? Oh, okay. Uh, verse 8. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti, who is King Xerxes' queen, also gave a banquet for the woman in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Now, I'm sure, you know, as a married, those of you that are married couple, um, have you ever thrown separate parties before? <laughs> Where, yeah, so this king here, Xerxes, he's put on a full-on party, and Queen Vashti on the other side of the kingdom, she's put on her own party and banquet for her own people. Wow. Already we can see that there's marital problems happening here, eh? There's some separation. There's no unity. <laughs> it's like it's not a match made in heaven, that's for sure. <laughs> On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, I'm going to skip their names, <clears throat> verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So he was angry, cut a long story short. He says to his officials and nobles, you know, this woman isn't coming. She's not obeying me. She's the queen. Uh, it's embarrassing me. It looks really bad. What shall I do? It, he's drunk and everyone else is drunk. So it's a drunk asking drunk for advice. And then his nobles are like, you know what we should do? We should banish her, get rid of her. She doesn't belong here because she gives all uh, the women a bad uh, taste in their mouth because she's encouraging them not to obey us. She's uh, encouraging our wives to not obey us when we give a command, banish her, get rid of her. And of course, King Xerxes, who was drunk, he's like, yes! Wow, what a great decision! <laughs> Straight away! In his right, in what he thinks is his right mind, he, he writes a decree and he gets rid of Queen, Queen Vashti from the palace. And um, he's, he sent, oh, the nobles said to him, send out the decree and make sure, you know, you, you put in there, tell the wives to obey their husbands. Tell them the, the importance of this. And so the king's like, yes! Signs off, stamps it, seals it with a kiss, sends it off to all four corners of the kingdom. Now, I'm running through this really quickly so we can get to our point. And so, just because some of us haven't heard the story of Queen Esther before, so I want to tell it to you the way I see it, and I see things in colour and pictures. <laughs> and so, uh, cut a long story short, they needed a because the king needs a queen to rule by his side. The king cannot rule back in the days on his own. He needs a companion, someone to make the seat next to him look good and not empty. Because having a woman by your side back in the day was also, it was a great representation of wealth and unity for the kingdom, yes, and love. And so he needed a wife, and what they did was they, the kingdom of Persia, at that time they put on what we would know as the greatest pageant ever known to mankind. And they find women from all over the world, all four corners of the earth, and they bring them. They didn't care what they were, just, just bring them. If they look pretty, bring them. Bring them to, bring them to me. <laughs> and then he, they go through this process, just like a pageant, where they go through a process of elimination. You know pageants, yeah? When they go through a process of elimination, they ask questions. If, if you don't answer in accordance to what the judge thinks is right, then bye. If you don't look the part, bye. If you don't sound the part, bye. <laughs> if you don't present yourself and act the part, bye. And so we come to the story 
of Esther. Esther grew up, she, had no, she didn't have parents. Her parents had passed away, so she was an orphan child who was being raised by her uncle Mordecai. She was a Jew. And at the time, Jews weren't really looked at in a good light. I don't think they were ever looked at in a good light, ever, or until, until the time that we are living now, a much better light than they were back in the day. <laughs> and so because she was a Jew and her uh, uncle was saying, you know, go be a part of this pageant, you know, and she's like, no, no, no. And he's like, you can't tell them you're a Jew. The one thing that she identified with and made her comfortable and made her, it was her home to be called a Jew, she could not tell anybody. She had to hide it to protect herself, protect your uncle for such a time as this. And so what happened is she makes it to the palace and there's hundreds of girls in this pageant. And one by one, they get knocked off. Not, not knocked off, that's not a good, just, just, you know, oh, thank you, come again, don't come again. Thank you, don't come again. So, process of elimination. And we get to the end and, hooray, Queen Esther! She gets chosen and still she doesn't tell them who she really is. She still has to protect the secret, guard it close to her heart that she was a Jew. Now, as time goes on, we find out that when she becomes queen, the king has this official who's a right-hand man. His name is Haman, and he was an evil man. He didn't like Jews. He hated Jews. He thought they were beneath him, underneath his feet. And so he had his own agenda in standing next to the king. He wanted to, deep down, annihilate and, and, and get rid of all Jews in the world, in the land. Fast forward to Esther chapter 4. Uh, Esther chapter 4, verse 1 to 17. I'm going to read through 1 to 17 because I like to read scripture. Uh, when you have it, say amen. If you don't, just say, oh, I'm a bit lost. Thank you. Rev, you all good, Rev? <laughs> when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on a sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly, but he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and other of the king or an order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So the reason why Mordecai, who was uh, Queen Esther's uncle, the reason why he was so distressed is because Haman had already um, put together a plot to destroy Jews and he had already started to kill them off, to exile them and execute them and all of that. And so he was very distressed and wailing and weeping and I'm reading from verse 4. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of a sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned um, Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So this eunuch went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, edict for the annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Verse 9, the eunuch Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but, but one law, that he be put to death. The only ex ex exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, 
verse 13, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you are alone, or you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to royal position for such a time as this? Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I, or I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. Three days, 72 hours, she was given. And she had a decision on what she was going to do because the consequences of her decisions was going to change the course of history forever. Forever. Amen? While fasting is a private discipline that yields many personal benefits, the promises of fasting can also impact our community and our nation. In the Bible, there are two cases in particular where fasting literally changed history, and this is one of them. In chapter 4, the Jews were on the verge of destruction because of the evil conspiracy that Haman and the hate that he had in his heart towards the Jews. He was filled with a wrath against the Jews, uh, specifically Mordecai, because there was an instance where he didn't bow down and pay homage to Haman. And that, that he was furious. Because Haman was like, I'm the man. I'm next to the king. You bow to me when I tell you to. And as you can see in the story, Mordecai is so distressed. He's wailing at the gates. He sends word to Esther. If there was any other reason that you were put in that palace, would it not be for now, for such a time as this? Go gather all the Jews. This was a response. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Susa and fast for me. Don't drink or eat for three days, night and day. We will fast, me and my maids also. And once that is done, I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I die, I die. Amen. Esther was presented 72 hours to change the course of history, not just for her people, but for the world. I have to keep reiterating this because there's a certain conviction and revelation to it. Why three days? Why 72 hours? We all know that uh, three is the representation of completion, of wholeness. Jesus died and rose again in three days, and that was a display of wonder, a display of a miraculous power, the miraculous power of God. Three uh, is the Trinity. God has three personalities, but he is one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Seven is the number also of completeness, of perfection. Number two means union between man and woman, but also it means the union between Christ and the church. 72 days, 72 hours, three days. Fasting. In your notes, I've got a bit of a space there for you to write this down. Fasting is the physical act of obedience that activates a spiritual release and response from the frame room of God. You can cut that down to, to make it make sense, but it's the physical act of obedience that activates a spiritual release or response from the throne of God. And when there's that release or response, it comes to us in a form of supernatural. It comes to us, the church, in a form of miracles. It comes to us, the church, in a form of freedom, the Holy Spirit moving in the most miraculous way. That is a response to our physical obedience in fasting. Fasting, you know what? We always see, we might see fasting as a bit of a, uh, <laughs> I don't have time to fast. <laughs> I've got an event this Friday. 
I've got dinner on Tuesday night, I'll fast next week. But we need to see fasting as a privilege. Fasting as well as praying, it's an honor and a privilege for us because it's us tapping into this, tapping into the unknowing. It's releasing these, uh, correct, it's, it's us, it's a faith, it's a faith talk. So it's an honor and a privilege for us because us releasing that into the atmosphere allows God to move in the most phenomenal way, but yet we don't see it that way because we see fasting is not so important anymore because we think it's just for back then and there was time for it back then and there was power for it back then, but we don't understand that it translates to today. Amen? God has added a powerful weapon to our spiritual armory. He's given us the full armor of God, you know, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, shoes of peace, the, the belt of truth, shield of faith, shield of faith the sword of the, of the spirit. And then on top of that, we have prayer, fasting, and his word. Oh, no, the word is the sword, but prayer and fasting. Oh, my gosh, we have all the tools that we need to combat the enemy, but we always go with only half of our armor and leave the other half because we feel like it's not important. <laughs> when Esther approached the king on behalf of her people, they became a nation not of defeat, not of annihilation, suffering and shame, but a nation of favor. They received honor and promotion all because of three days, all because of 72 hours. Amen? My first memorable experience of fasting growing up was when I was maybe seven or eight um, and my mom was pregnant. And I remember fasting and praying for a sister because Rev popped out, Josh popped out, and I was like, nah, need a sister, need a girl. And so I was fasting and praying. My parents didn't know this and I remember sitting at the back. So dad used to be a taxi driver back in the day and so um, we took this white Ford, it was a your Ford was the taxi, eh? I was sitting at the back and we were going for the scan and mom was going to find out the gender of the baby. And I was like, yup, I'll fasted and pray for this. It's going to be a girl. And then she jumps into the, car, into the car, gives me this ultra scan photo and she's like, and I'm like, <laughs> and she's like, I'm sorry, baby, it's a boy. <laughs> at seven and eight years old, to have the revelation of prayer and fasting, I was so disappointed. I wasn't angry at God. I was angry at the situation. And I was so, I cried silent tears all the way home. <laughs> all the way home. <laughs> My innocent heart was broken, but God taught me at a very young age that uh, he knew what was best for me. And although I didn't see it then, that I would eventually come to see it as the years went on. David in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, uh, he has a bit of a situation where he's fasting. Oh, he commits sin. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. She's pregnant. Samuel, oh, no, prophet Nathan's like, you did this, so this is the consequences of your actions. And David's like, no, no, no. You know, I'm sorry. You know, I did wrong. And then um, was it Bathsheba that falls sick? Or something's wrong with the baby? baby? Something is wrong with the baby. And so David fasts and prays for this baby. And he doesn't eat nothing. And everyone's worried about him, all his advisors. And then eventually the baby dies. And then the advisors are like secretly whispering to themselves in the distance. And David's like, oh, maybe the baby's dead. And they didn't want to tell him because they were like, he was so distressed when he was praying and fasting. And then he's like, is the child dead? And they're like, yes, but we didn't want to tell him. He's like, oh, okay. And he gets up, he washes his face, puts on clean clothes, has a meal, praises the Lord. What we think is best doesn't necessarily mean it's what's best for us from God. Fasting. And you know what's funny? It's sometimes we fast and pray for specific things and God doesn't come through and, those, and give us the answers that we want. But no, please know, please know that although it's not being answered here, God will answer eventually over here in another setting, 
in another situation, but because you invested there, God always remembers. Supernatural miracles will always follow in his time. Amen? My second memorable experience of fasting was when I was around 12 years old, and um, we were fasting as a church. So we went to this congregational Samoan church after mom and dad moved from an English, a multicultural church, and they were pastors at this congregational Pentecostal church. And I remember we were doing a family fast. I, again, I, I understood it, but I didn't really, but I did it anyway because it was cool. I, I was that kid. I was the weird kid that took their Bible everywhere. I went and read it and told people about Jesus. And I would do salvation prayers with my, uh, with my friends in the locker room. That was me <laughs> back in the day. And so we were fasting and praying. And at the time growing up, we didn't have much. We uh, would be lucky enough to have vegetables and noodles in the cupboard. <laughs> and so after our fasting, I remember mom made a vegetable soup. And we had some noodles in the cupboard, so she chucked noodles in. And we didn't have money for rice, so we only had like these small crackers in the cupboard. And she would butter the crackers, and we broke our fast to this vegetable noodle soup and crackers. But it didn't matter to me what we were eating. What mattered to me was who I was breaking my fast with. And it was my family. Because we just finished this fast, and I was starving, and I knew it was for a good cause. I knew whatever it was that we were fasting and praying for, God will deal with that and come through with it because I've sacrificed, but now I get to break bread with my family. The community that fasting brings, is so, uh, it's very important. When Katrina messaged me two weeks ago and she was like, what do you eat when, you, uh, when you're vegetable fasting? Is it just vegetables and fruit? Do we eat rice and bread and eggs? <laughs> Sorry, sis, no. But that, to me, the community of fasting, because we're all believing that God is going to move. We don't know what he's going to do. We just know he's going to do something. But we believe anyway, and we're fasting together as a corporate man. There is so much power to that. There is so much substance. Fasting is the physical, our physical act of obedience. And that opens and allows the supernatural, spiritual release from heaven to take place. Amen? There is so much power in corporate prayer and fasting. And when we fast and pray in unity as a church, we will receive a spiritual release. 72 hours. A corporate fasting was about to commence that was going to cause a community of people alike to come together in fasting and prayer to submit to God a request that will allow for the freedom of his people from the enemy. Now, there are three purposes, I feel, why we fast. There are three purposes of fasting. And uh, you, you should have notes. To, yes, thank you very much. The first purpose of fasting, it reminds us who sustains us. Food does not sustain us. Oh, man. <laughs> Colossians 1 verse 17 states that in Christ, all things hold together. By abstaining from food or one feast, um, and feasting on the word of God helps to nourish our spirit man. Amen? So the first, what was the first purpose? Yeah. Oh, you guys are listening. The second purpose of fasting is it helps bring balance to our lives. How often do the non-essentials of life take control? How often do we one things that we don't need, me all the time. How often do things other than God, how many things that we allow other than God to control us? Fasting helps keep the natural desires of our human selves in check <laughs> and balanced. Um, I've got some scriptures there. First Corinthians 9, 27 and Psalms 35 verse 13 it describes this very thing of helping to keep balance in our lives. And the third purpose of fasting is uh, fasting must forever be centered on God, not on weight loss, not on what you want in return. Fasting has to be centered around God. Zechariah 7 verse 5 says, God asked the question, did you fast unto me? Our fasting must be done unto God under God's direction, and we must have our eyes fixed on him when we fast. 
our one intention should be to glorify our Father in heaven. Amen? Uh, before we get to 72 hours, I want to also share about another mem- memorable experience of fasting. It might not look like I was fasting, but I was. <laughs> it, it's been a huge staple for my life. So in our preparation to moving here to uh, the north side, I went into fasting mode because I wanted God to intervene in our move because I knew it was going to be hard. I didn't know it was going to be this hard, but I, I still knew it was going to be hard. <laughs> and so I went into lockdown mode. My first fasting, I did a 40-day fast, no food. I just drank liquids like tea, coffee, juice, some smoothies because like, I was so desperate for God to change me because I wanted change, because I was like, nah, can't go to the north side with this baggage. <laughs> change me, Lord. <laughs> and I went into lockdown, and I, the first seven days were hard, because I was the main cook in my house back in the south side. So I was cooking constantly. And so for seven days, I was cooking <laughs> for my family, and I was like, God, I really want to open my fast. And I remember on Sunday after church, when I was cooking salmon outside on our grill, and God was like, Remember to whom you fast. And then I cried while cooking the salmon. And I never turned back. By the time it hit 40 days, man, I had a clear conscience. Something had broken me. I had clarity. I, was so, I felt like my spirit was like this with, with God. And I could hear him so clearly to the point where I was like, are you sure that's you? The power of fasting. It helps us to lower our senses. Our senses become less. I, I died to myself, literally, and, and just lived life and went about doing my thing. And I would feel this rumbling in my stomach constantly, but I knew that what I was fasting for was greater than what I felt. And then for a, year, a year after that, which was, I think, the year before we came, I know 2017, I did my final fast before we came over. And I fasted for 99 days, no food. And I lost so much weight. But I knew, again, that God, I needed God to move in my life and in my family. I was fasting in preparation. It was like I was fighting here, like God was fighting on my side here, so that over there, it won't be as crazy. Even though it is crazy, I feel like that our preparation as a family already obliterated what the enemy, like the huge plan that he already had over the north. And I fasted and I prayed and I was connected to God's heart. And I would make sure like (laughs) I was reading my Bible every day and I was so pumped and every day I would come up to Dan and I'm like, this is what I got from the Lord today. I just wanted to share with you. (laughs) And Dan would be like, oh my goodness. But the power of fasting moves mountains. I can attest to that, amen. Hallelujah. 72 hours. Three days. I'm almost done. Are you still with me? Oh, praise God. Oh, (laughs) Oh, no, please. (laughs) Now we enter Esther chapter 5. And Esther chapter 5, on the third day, after the 72 hours of fasting, Esther put on her royal, royal robes. You know, after David fasted and prayed, he went on and had a shower, put on nice clean clothes, went, praise the Lord. After she fasted, she went and put on the most, her beautiful royal robes to approach the king's meeting, to present her request. Now, what's funny is when she came to present her request, I mentioned before that in that particular meeting that was happening, she could not enter. If she entered that particular meeting between the king and the officials, she was dead. She wasn't allowed to. It's already been 30 days. There's a 30-day period where she's allowed to enter that meeting. But because that 30 days was over, she could not enter it anymore. But God is a God who is miraculous. He works in the supernatural. And for 72 hours as they fasted and prayed, it was their act of obedience, their physical act of obedience, and, and God responded to that because when she entered, everyone, I'm sure the nobles were like, What is this woman doing in here, sir? 
Why is she here? And she approached the king. Now, if you think about the courts of the king, I'm sure there was a long, can you picture this? This long uh, aisle, and the king's here, and all his nobles are around him. And she walks, it's like a walk of shame. eh? She's just walking through. She has no idea what's going to happen. She's like, if I perish, I perish. The nobles are like, you need to kill her. She shouldn't be here. She has to be, you know what I mean? And the king, who was operating in the spirit at that time, because God was in that room. And when God is in the room, when God is in our midst, who can stand against us? No weapon formed, it says in the Bible, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Amen. So she's walking this long hallway as she approaches the king and the nobles are going at it. And then the king holds out his scepter. And the scepter was a sign of authority to say, no, enough. I am king. This is my kingdom. You do what I say. And there was in that moment an authority that this king presented, an authority that wasn't his, that came from God. It directly came from God and it saved her from facing this, uh, you know, this death that was prepared for her by law. Amen. Now I want to let you know that God, when we fast and pray as an act of obedience, God operates in the supernatural and he does things that are so against the normal. He does supernatural things, what I call unlikely, unusual miracles, where we might not see that there is a way, but God seems to come in the most craziest way. And it's like, wait, where did you just come from? That is the God that we serve, who acts in response to fasting. Amen. Hallelujah. So she approaches the throne and she says, um, in this verse, um, obviously she comes up and he's like, eh. and then he's like, what would you like for me to do? And she's like, I just want you to come for dinner. Who says that? <laughs> she fasted for 72 days, gets into that uh, the throne room of the king and, and uh, she's about to get killed, doesn't get killed. And then he's like, what, tell me your request. And she's like, I just request that you come and share a meal with me that I make. I'm sure even the nobles are looking at her going, oh my goodness. We stopped our meeting of importance for the governance of this world for this? For her to ask this king to dinner? How dare she? Unlikely miracles that brought, even though they didn't understand it, but God knew what he was doing. And the king responded with yes i will dine with you i'll have dinner with you you tell me where and when if we go to chapter 7 of esther sorry i'm doing a bit of a history lesson through esther bear with me you're going to remember esther for all of the week now oh no uh esther chapter 6 so they're having uh, hold on, let me just... Oh no, Esther chapter 7, sorry, forgive me. Team, church, family. So, it's part of the law that not just the king goes, his, his uh, right-hand man has to go with him. So, they have dinner with Esther, and they're drinking wine, and then the king asks Esther in uh, chapter 7, verse 2, Queen Esther... What is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be yours. Or it will be granted. And then the queen replied in verse 3, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and, f- and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. But because no such distress, distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? 
Where is the man who has dared to do such thing? Who in their right mind dares to oppose the king's wife, the queen of Persia? Who? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is the vile Haman, his right-hand man. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just in verse 8, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king ex exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in my house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows two, 23 meters high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. Then the king, king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. So it's, it's a bit ruthless. <laughs> it's not even that. Send him to jail, hang him. Oh, oh. I want to let you know this morning that when we fast in physical obedience for a spiritual release, God doesn't just take out, he completely takes out and cancels the plans of the enemy or anything that the enemy had planned for you, for now, for your children, for the future, for the church. And God doesn't just, doesn't just you know, cancel it a little bit. Yeah? He, he is God. He completely annihilates the plans of the enemy as a response to our obedience to God and fasting. Amen? 72 hours to change the course of history. In chapter 8, we see that, uh, it's funny because, uh, yeah, I'll read this out. On the same, that same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. 72 hours of fasting and prayer. She approaches the king, and this all happens in like, like 24 hours. Cause, oh, no, not even 24 hours. I'm sure it was in a couple of days as well this all happened. And at the end of it, not only did God come through, he came through and then some. Because not only was, uh, the, were the Jews freed, the king wrote a decree to say, you know, leave the Jews, there's no more annihilation, I have spoken, you know, there's a protection over them, leave them now to do what it is that they please, they can live wherever they want. And then on top of that, he gives Haman, his official, who was the right-hand man to him, he gives his estate. When you talk about an estate, it's everything, every land, every... Uh, lamb, every animal, everything that belonged to Haman now belonged to Esther and her family, her uncle, right? There was a, it's like a generational thing that's happening here in the atmosphere. Now, in Isaiah 60, our verse is Isaiah 61, they did. In Isaiah 61, there's a specific scripture there. I'm, I can't remember what it is because it's, God is putting it in my heart, but it's saying that the wealth and the riches of, of, the, uh, of, the, of, the, world. of the wicked belongs to, to his children. It belongs to us. And so not only in the response to uh, this fasting and prayer does he annihilate and cancel out the enemy's plans, but... In fact, what ends up happening is the wealth and the riches of, his, of Esther's enemy, who was Haman, becomes hers. Now, I want to let you know this morning that God's got us. God is covering us. He is for us. He is with us. He is next to us, beside us, on top of us, behind us. Everywhere that we are, God is as a response to our obedience, right? 
Oh, man. Oh, sorry about this, everyone. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We've been given these tools, the word of God, prayer and fasting. And you and I, we have the ability to change the course of history, not just for our families, but for our community and even this nation. Do you know how important it is that we stand together as the body of Christ for this nation and for just the body of Christ in general? Amen. Because so much is happening in this world that um, can be explained and can't be explained. And right now, our only front and our only uh, form of survival is Christ. What, what can we do? Where can we run? David said, where can I hide and run where you can't find me? Where, what, what else can we do but rely on Jesus? What else can we do but, you know what I mean? Be planted, be rooted somewhere where he's caught us and be connected to his heart so that, you know, he can continue to be God and do what it is that he does best. Amen? Fasting enables us to do a lot of things. The reason we fast is to humble ourselves before God so that we can better hear his voice. Now, I just want to talk about the benefits of fasting so that you can go away and be like, I'm fasting today or tomorrow, 40 days. No, I don't encourage that. Just take it easy. <laughs> 72 hours is fine. The benefits of fasting, the first one is, the, benefit, uh, the first benefit is we are humbling ourselves. It's benefiting us as we humble ourselves, it says in this, world, in this word, that when we humble ourselves, seek his face, turn away from our wicked ways, he will heal from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land. The second benefit is we will see life's priorities more clearly. We will see life's priorities more clearly. And God will jump from number three to number two and into number one real quick. The third benefit is, um, it's also one of the reasons why we fast, but uh, we will see balance return to areas of our life where there was imbalance. We will see balance return to the areas of our life where there is imbalance. I can attest to that 100%. Uh, the fourth benefit is our selfish ambition and pride will begin to be washed away. And you know what's funny? You begin to appreciate what you already have <laughs> and stop looking at what you don't have. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, thanks, God. Sorry. <laughs> Forgive me for wanting what she had. The fifth uh, benefit is our hidden areas of weakness will rise to the surface so that God can deal with them. I want to say that again. Um, we will be... Oh, sorry. Our hidden areas of weakness will rise to the surface so God can deal with them. Yes, Revelation? Number four is um, our selfish ambition and pride will begin to be washed away. Clean. <laughs> you're, you're good there, Uzo? Do you want the next number? <laughs> uh, the, is it the fifth benefit? Are we on to the fifth one? Oh, we're on to the sixth one then, yeah? Uh, we will be more sensitive to God's spirit. And it's funny because as we're being more sensitive to a spirit, we begin to activate the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen. It can't activate if we're not sensitive to the spirit of God. Amen? We begin to operate. And what are those nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, everybody? Gentleness. <laughs> I'll just speak to myself. <laughs> yes. Yes, pastor. Yes. Amen. That, oh, yes. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> the Lord knows I need it. Um, are we on to the seventh one? And the seventh benefit is God will make us more unselfish. God will make us more unselfish. What would you do? if you had 72 hours to change the course of history. There is a, as I mentioned this just before, that there is a 
spirit of sanctification in the atmosphere. God is really, I love it that he's doing a cleansing because I need to be cleansed. I need to be cleansed hard out, you know. Because we, if we, the more cleansed that we are and the more free that we are to operate in the calling that God's given us and purpose over our lives, then we can love a little bit more. We can, you know, do you, you know what I mean? Be patient just that a little bit more. We can help and serve people just a little bit more and we can extend God's kingdom just a little bit more. And, and that's ultimately what we want. The heart of this church, the vision of this house is Jesus' hope for humanity. Now, to some, it might mean, oh my gosh, that's so huge. But in fact, we serve, yes, we serve this huge God, but ultimately, it comes down to us, who we are. We are a representation of Christ. And uh, we're a representation of his love, his kindness. And right now, as we're going through this month of fasting, we, I really encourage our church to stand alongside us and fast. You don't have to fast three days with no food and drink. <laughs> Even if it's just like fasting from, the more, from six o'clock to six o'clock, no food, open it at night or for the whole week, you just have vegetables and fruit. Because we're believing in something greater than ourselves, something bigger than ourselves, amen? And what God is doing, and I don't know if you see it, but I... Man, I see this building of thousands of young people coming to Jesus. I see a building with facilities where our children can have children's church and not have to like be out there underneath the undercover area every Sunday. And I see a building where we get to like equip the body of Christ through conferences and like healing ministry and uh, teaching. And I see a building, not even just a building, I see Mount Refuge Church operating in the supernatural things of Christ. Things that we never thought that we could do. I see Mount Refuge Church doing it under the leadership of our pastors. God is good, amen. God is awesome. 72 hours. We have these moments. We have now. We have right now to operate in the supernatural by obeying Christ. May the Lord bless you all. Oh, okay.